Chapter forty two of the Mayor of Casterbridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. Chapter forty two. But the emotional conviction that he was in somebody's hand began to die out of Henchard's breast as time slowly removed into distance the event which had given that feeling birth. The apparition of Newson haunted him. He would surely return. Yet Newson did not arrive. Lucetta had been borne along the churchyard path. Casterbridge had, for the last time, turned its regard upon her, before proceeding to its work as if she had never lived. But Elizabeth remained undisturbed in the belief of her relationship to Henchard, and now shared his home. Perhaps, after all, Newson was gone forever. In due time the bereaved Farfrae had learnt the, at least, proximate cause of Lucetta's illness and death, and his first impulse was, naturally enough, to wreak vengeance in the name of the law upon the perpetrators of the mischief. He resolved to wait till the funeral was over ere he moved in the matter. The time having come, he reflected. Disastrous as the result had been, it was obviously in no way foreseen or intended by the thoughtless crew who arranged the motley procession. The tempting prospect of putting to the blush people who stand at the head of affairs, that supreme and piquant enjoyment of those who writhe under the heel of the same, had alone animated them, so far as he could see, for he knew nothing of Jopp's incitements. Other considerations were also involved. Lucetta had confessed everything to him before her death, and it was not altogether desirable to make much ado about her history, alike for her sake, for Henchard's, and for his own. To regard the event as an untoward accident seemed to Farfrae truest consideration for the dead one's memory, as well as best philosophy. Henchard and himself mutually forbore to meet. For Elizabeth's sake the former had fettered his pride sufficiently to accept the small seed and root business which some of the town council, headed by Farfrae, had purchased to afford him a new opening. Had he been only personally concerned, Henchard, without doubt, would have declined assistance even remotely brought about by the man whom he had so fiercely assailed. But the sympathy of the girl seemed necessary to his very existence, and on her account pride itself wore the garments of humility. Here they settled themselves, and on each day of their lives Henchard anticipated her every wish with a watchfulness in which paternal regard was heightened by a burning jealous dread of rivalry. Yet that Newson would ever now return to Casterbridge to claim her as a daughter there was little reason to suppose. He was a wanderer and a stranger, almost an alien. He had not seen his daughter for several years. His affection for her could not, in the nature of things, be keen. Other interests would probably soon obscure his recollections of her, and prevent any such renewal of inquiry into the past as would lead to a discovery that she was still a creature of the present. To satisfy his conscience somewhat, Henchard repeated to himself that the lie which had retained for him the coveted treasure had not been deliberately told to that end, but had come from him as the last defiant word of a despair which took no thought of consequences. Furthermore, he pleaded within himself that no Newson could love her as he loved her, or would tend her to his life's extremity as he was prepared to do cheerfully. Thus they lived on in the shop overlooking the churchyard, and nothing occurred to mark their days during the remainder of the year. Going out but seldom, and never on a market-day, they saw Donald Farfrae only at rarest intervals, and then mostly as a transitory object in the distance of the street. Yet he was pursuing his ordinary avocations, 
smiling mechanically to fellow tradesmen, and arguing with bargainers, as bereaved men do after a while. Time, in his own grey style, taught Farfrae how to estimate his experience of Lucetta, all that it was and all that it was not. There are men whose hearts insist upon a dogged fidelity to some image or cause thrown by chance into their keeping, long after their judgment has pronounced it no rarity, even the reverse, indeed, and without them the band of the worthy is incomplete. But Farfrae was not one of those. It was inevitable that the insight, briskness, and rapidity of his nature should take him out of the dead blank which his loss threw about him. He could not but perceive that by the death of Lucetta he had exchanged a looming misery for a simple sorrow. After that revelation of her history, which must have come sooner or later in any circumstances, it was hard to believe that life with her would have been productive of further happiness. But as a memory, notwithstanding such conditions, Lucetta's image still lived on with him, her weaknesses provoking only the gentlest criticism, and her sufferings attenuating wrath at her concealments to a momentary spark now and then. By the end of a year Henchard's little retail seed and grain shop, not much larger than a cupboard, had developed its trade considerably, and the stepfather and daughter enjoyed much serenity in the pleasant sunny corner in which it stood. The quiet bearing of one who brimmed with an inner activity characterized Elizabeth Jane at this period. She took long walks into the country two or three times a week, mostly in the direction of Budmouth. Sometimes it occurred to him that when she sat with him in the evening, after those invigorating walks, she was civil rather than affectionate, and he was troubled. One more bitter regret being added to those he had already experienced at having, by his severe censorship, frozen up her precious affection when originally offered. She had her own way in everything now, in going and coming, in buying and selling her word was law. "'You have got a new muff, Elizabeth,' he said to her one day, quite humbly. "'Yes, I bought it,' she said. He looked at it again as it lay on an adjoining table. The fur was of a glossy brown, and though he was no judge of such articles, he thought it seemed an unusually good one for her to possess. "'Rather costly, I suppose, my dear, was it not?' he hazarded. "'It was rather above my figure,' she said quietly. "'But it is not showy.' "'Oh, no,' said the netted lion, anxious not to pique her in the least. Some little time after, when the year had advanced into another spring, he paused opposite her empty bedroom in passing it. He thought of the time when she had cleared out of his then large and handsome house in Corn Street in consequence of his dislike and harshness, and he had looked into her chamber in just the same way. The present room was much humbler, but what struck him about it was the abundance of books lying everywhere. Their number and quality made the meagre furniture that supported them seem absurdly disproportionate. Some, indeed many, must have been recently purchased, and though he encouraged her to buy in reason, he had no notion that she indulged her innate passion so extensively in proportion to the narrowness of their income. For the first time he felt a little hurt by what he thought her extravagance, and resolved to say a word to her about it. But before he had found the courage to speak, an event happened which set his thoughts flying in quite another direction. The busy time of the seed trade was over, and the quiet weeks that preceded the hay season had come, setting their special stamp upon Casterbridge by thronging the market with wood-rakes, new wagons in yellow, green, and red, formidable scythes, and pitchforks of prongs sufficient to skewer up a small family. Henchard, contrary to his wont, 
went out one Saturday afternoon towards the market-place from a curious feeling that he would like to pass a few minutes on the spot of his former triumphs. Farfrae, to whom he was still a comparative stranger, stood a few steps below the corn exchange door, a usual position with him at this hour, and he appeared lost in thought about something he was looking at a little way off. Henchard's eyes followed Farfrae's, and he saw that the object of his gaze was no sample-showing farmer, but his own stepdaughter, who had just come out of a shop over the way. She, on her part, was quite unconscious of his attention, and in this was less fortunate than those young women whose very plumes, like those of Juno's bird, are set with Argus eyes whenever possible admirers are within ken. Henchard went away, thinking that perhaps there was nothing significant after all in Farfrae's look at Elizabeth Jane at that juncture. Yet he could not forget that the Scotchman had once shown a tender interest in her, of a fleeting kind. Thereupon promptly came to the surface that idiosyncrasy of Henchard's, which had ruled his courses from the beginning, and had mainly made him what he was. Instead of thinking that a union between his cherished stepdaughter and the energetic, thriving Donald was a thing to be desired for her good and his own, he hated the very possibility. Time had been when such instinctive opposition would have taken shape in action, but he was not now the Henchard of former days. He schooled himself to accept her will, in this, as in other matters, as absolute and unquestionable. He dreaded lest an antagonistic word should lose for him such regard as he had regained from her by his devotion, feeling that to retain this under separation was better than to incur her dislike by keeping her near. But the mere thought of such separation fevered his spirit much, and in the evening he said, with the stillness of suspense, "'Have you seen Mr. Farfrae to-day, Elizabeth?' Elizabeth Jane started at the question, and it was with some confusion that she replied, "'No.' "'Oh, that's right, that's right. It was only that I saw him in the street when we both were there.' He was wondering if her embarrassment justified him in a new suspicion, that the long walks which she had latterly been taking, that the new books which had so surprised him, had anything to do with the young man. She did not enlighten him, and lest silence should allow her to shape thoughts unfavourable to their present friendly relations, he diverted the discourse into another channel. Henchard was, by original make, the last man to act stealthily, for good or for evil. But the solicitous timour of his love, the dependence upon Elizabeth's regard into which he had declined, or, in another sense, to which he had advanced, denaturalized him. He would often weigh and consider for hours together the meaning of such and such a deed or phrase of hers, when a blunt settling question would formerly have been his first instinct. And now, uneasy at the thought of a passion for Farfrae, which should entirely displace her mild filial sympathy with himself, he observed her going and coming more narrowly. There was nothing secret in Elizabeth Jane's movements beyond what habitual reserve induced, and it may at once be owned on her account that she was guilty of occasional conversations with Donald when they chanced to meet. Whatever the origin of her walks on the Budmouth Road, her return from those walks was often coincident with Farfrae's emergence from Corn Street for a twenty minutes blow on that rather windy highway, just to winnow the seeds and chaff out of him before sitting down to tea, as he said. Henchard became aware of this by going to the ring, and screened by its enclosure, keeping his eye upon the road till he saw them meet. His face assumed an expression of extreme anguish. "'Of her, too, he means to rob me,' he whispered. "'But he has the right. I do not wish to interfere.' 
The meeting, in truth, was of a very innocent kind, and matters were by no means so far advanced between the young people as Henchard's jealous grief inferred. Could he have heard such conversation as passed, he would have been enlightened thus much. He. You like walking this way, Miss Henchard? And is it not so? Uttered in his undulatory accents, and with an appraising, pondering gaze at her. She. Oh, yes, I have chosen this road latterly. I have no great reason for it. He. But that may make a reason for others. She, reddening. I don't know that. My reason, however, such as it is, is that I wish to get a glimpse of the sea every day. He. Is it a secret why? She, reluctantly. Yes. He, with the pathos of one of his native ballads, Ah, I doubt there will be any good in secrets. A secret cast a deep shadow over my life, and well you know what it was. Elizabeth admitted that she did, but she refrained from confessing why the sea attracted her. She could not herself account for it fully, not knowing the secret possibly to be that in addition to early marine associations her blood was a sailor's. "'Thank you for those new books, Mr. Farfrae,' she added shyly. "'I wonder if I ought to accept so many.' "'Eh, why not? It gives me more pleasure to get them for you than you to have them.' "'It cannot.' They proceeded along the road together till they reached the town, and their paths diverged. Henchard vowed that he would leave them to their own devices, put nothing in the way of their courses, whatever they might mean. If he were doomed to be bereft of her, so it must be. In the situation which their marriage would create, he could see no locus standi for himself at all. Farfrae would never recognize him more than superciliously. His poverty ensured that, no less than his past conduct. And so Elizabeth would grow to be a stranger to him, and the end of his life would be friendless solitude. With such a possibility impending, he could not help watchfulness. Indeed, within certain lines, he had the right to keep an eye upon her as his charge. The meetings seemed to become matters of course with them on special days of the week. At last full proof was given him. He was standing behind a wall, close to the place at which Farfrae encountered her. He heard the young man address her as, "'Dearest Elizabeth Jane,' and then kiss her, the girl looking quickly round to assure herself that nobody was near. When they were gone their way, Henchard came out from the wall and mournfully followed them to Casterbridge. The chief looming trouble in this engagement had not decreased. Both Farfrae and Elizabeth Jane, unlike the rest of the people, must suppose Elizabeth to be his actual daughter, from his own assertion while he himself had the same belief. And though Farfrae must have so far forgiven him as to have no objection to own him as a father-in-law, intimate they could never be. Thus would the girl, who was his only friend, be withdrawn from him by degrees through her husband's influence, and learn to despise him. Had she lost her heart to any other man in the world than the one he had rivalled, cursed, wrestled with for life in days before his spirit was broken, Henchard would have said, I am content. But content with the prospect as now depicted was hard to acquire. There is an outer chamber of the brain in which thoughts, unowned, unsolicited, and of noxious kind, are sometimes allowed to wander for a moment prior to being sent off whence they came. One of these thoughts sailed into Henchard's ken now. Suppose he were to communicate to Farfrae the fact that his betrothed was not the child of Michael Henchard at all, legally nobody's child. How would that correct and leading townsman receive the information? He might possibly forsake Elizabeth Jane, and then she would be her stepsire's own again. Henchard shuddered and exclaimed, 
God forbid such a thing! Why should I still be subject to these visitations of the devil, when I try so hard to keep him away? End of chapter 42